0: Our next guest just had a baby.
1: Actually, Yay. my wife just had the baby. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's that's true. And he's he also leads one of the most important, humble yet powerful organizations in Lancaster. We love him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Welcome to The Behaviorist with Work Wisdom, where we help you adopt high-performance mindsets, behaviors, communication, and culture. I'm your host, Sarah Colantonio, and we also have... Kedron Crosby. Thanks for coming in. Sure. And today on our podcast, our guest is Mike McKenna, the CEO of Tabor Community Services. Hi, Mike.
1: Hi. How are you guys?
0: Good. We're great. Uh, how much sleep are you getting? <laughs>
1: Not much. <laughs> <laughs> the girls are alternating who wants to be up on which hour. <laughs> so that's oh, really, it's really good. Though so Catherine definitely has the, the harder end of it. So, yeah.
0: well, um, let's give her our love. I will. So, is it true? One is like none and two is like 10? Is that true? Yes. Okay. That's, how you, it's <laughs> that's the math. It's crazy.
1: <laughs> um, you think you're unprepared for the first one, yeah. which is definitely true. Yeah. And then you bring home two and you're like, oh. You're you're prepared for the newborn stage. You at least know what's happening there. But then you have a toddler who still has all the same expectations she did before you went to the hospital. And you're like, oh, dear, what can (laughs) we do for you? So we're kind of like man to man right now. I'm focused on the toddler and Catherine's focused on the infant for the most part. Okay. Every now and again, you get a strategic switch in there and that really helps keep things moving.
2: Huh. This could be a topic that we focus on leadership (laughs) styles in parenting and division of labor and delegation, empowerment. We
1: talked about the Enneagram before and I got a a parenting book with the Enneagram. Oh my gosh. Figure out our parenting style. Oh, that's We haven't done it yet because we've been too busy. (laughs) But in theory, we're going to do it. That's great.
0: Glad to know it exists. Yeah, well, yeah, interesting. Well, we could try that with the two dogs that we now have. Yeah. It's not the same. I yeah. know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get to it. So um, let's start with the first question we have for you, which is actually, it's not a question. It's just asking you to describe the essence of your work in a word or a phrase.
1: Well, I think if I look for Tabor specifically, I would mm-hmm. use the phrase opening doors. Everything we've done for the past 50 years has really been around this notion of creating opportunity and housing for people and being able to give them the skills and tools they need to have promising futures financially and and stable futures in terms of housing. And then if I think in terms of my career overall, I'd probably think about this phrase of going upstream for solutions that work for people who are vulnerable. Every place I've worked, has really been focused on some aspect of um, access deficiencies, lack of opportunity, and then trying to connect the dots to make sure that those uh, opportunities can happen.
2: Mm. An upstreamist. My favorite <laughs> kind of leader.
0: <laughs> so tell me a bit about how you came to learn what your core values are.
1: Started with the nuns. It started actually with it nuns. started with my parents but then the nuns really okay. helped <laughs> they really help you define your values pretty quickly yeah. but mm. actually in my case it was a very uh very promising way it was a school run by the sisters of mercy so they really focused on corporate works of mercy um and uh w- there was a woman who worked there who was head of campus ministry who was truly a servant leader and she exposed me and, and all my classmates and my sisters as did my parents to lots of opportunities to do service with people who are very different than I was. Mm. Um, So it gave me a sense of kind of what the real world looks like and and all its uh, good aspects and some of the not so good aspects. Mm. Um, And then you have formative experiences as everyone does. I had uh, some really uh, intense experiences, one in Camden, one Mm. in in New uh, Mexico on the the US-Mexico border in Tijuana working with migrants that really kind of crystallized for me like what was my calling and it had to be something giving back to others Um, and then later on I had an experience when I was working with the Foreign Service and the State Department and that helped crystallize another one of my values which was family is so important to me and Mm -hmm. that's kind of number one and having a career as a diplomat where you're in a new place every two to three years wasn't really compatible for that goal that I had in terms of Um, being present for my family, being a good husband, being a good father. Um, For any diplomats listening, I'm not trying to say that you're not those things. I'm just saying it wasn't the right fit for me. (laughs) Diplomat shaming. Hmm.
2: So I'm interested in um, how you developed your values and how you learned what your values were. Um, How do your values shape what you decide to do?
1: Yeah, that's been really critical. I've had uh, a few experiences where I was able to kind of boil down to the essence, um, including an exercise working with Kedron to really define kind of what my core values were. I think everybody knows them intuitively or implicitly, but sometimes you just need to like stare them in the face to be like, oh yeah, this is the most important thing to me. Um, And that exercise was really helpful as I was kind of discerning career opportunities. So I'm new to Tabor. I've been there since October. Prior to that was uh, a COO at uh, another nonprofit called Community Action Partnership, um, both very fulfilling jobs, but um, was starting to feel like there was going to be an, a new chapter for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that whatever that new chapter was, it had to fit with the core values. Um, and I mentioned two of those with well, a family mm-hmm. and the, the focus on, on people who are low income. Um, another is really this idea of looking at kind of what works looking for the truth mm-hmm. um, in kind of a big spiritual sense, but also really in a mm. pragmatic sense as it relates to like what works for people who are struggling? What are the reasons that people are struggling? How do we figure that out? Um, and I knew there was uh, going to be, when I'm looking at a, an opportunity and I wanted it to be in, in senior leadership in a, in a nonprofit, it had to meet those, those three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the opportunity for Tabor came along, I, looked at what that organization was all about. I was drawn to the fact that it had this faith founding by a very courageous Mennonite woman who said Mm -hmm. housing discrimination sucks and we need as Christians to do something about it. Um, And I also knew that an executive leadership position a president position was going to be demanding in ways that might take me away from my family. And so Mm -hmm. how could I balance those two things? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when I I was offered the position. um, I said look I'm going to need more time off because I'm expecting another child. Mm -hmm. I'm a dad who already likes spending time with my children. So what can we do there? And thankfully Mm -hmm. they were willing to accommodate that request. Um, But I thought that was really important. Um, A wise person told me to have my cake and eat it too (laughs) when those (laughs) opportunities came along. Um, And so I I did ask those questions to say, how can this job be compatible with all the values and not just one or two of them? Because if it wasn't all adding up, I figured I probably wouldn't be happy um, in the long run.
2: Have you ever had an experience where um, you have a value that's one of these deeply held beliefs that guides behavior, um, and you had a lot of frustration because the behavior you had to have was incongruent with one of your deeply held beliefs? Has that ever happened to you in your work life? And can you talk a little bit about how Maybe you came to understand that value even more because of the incongruence?
1: Yeah, that's a, a really good question. I think the my time in D.C. comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to work on some really interesting issue campaigns while I w- was working for a nonprofit in D.C., um, and I learned so much from that experience. I loved the mission. I loved my colleagues. Uh, but one of the things that was really challenging was I really wanted to be able to Prioritize my time with Catherine. We were newlyweds at the time, Mm. and I had a very long commute from where we were living. Um, And it was getting increasingly sort of taxing to have that long commute, the time apart. We're both working a lot. Um, And ultimately, as much as I loved the work that that organization was doing, I knew that I would need to find a job that could really meet me where I needed to be in Mm -hmm. terms of prioritizing that family. And I don't know that I would have been able to articulate it as clearly at that time. It yeah. was just like you have the general frustration. You come yeah. home worn out and, um, and it just sort of erodes your quality of life over right. time. Um, looking back on it, I think that was a major factor, even though it was meeting some of my other expectations as far as focus on an issue of people mm-hmm. who are vulnerable. And we were solving things. We were generating ideas and we were coming up with sort of the quote-unquote, truth as it related mm-hmm. to this particular mm-hmm. challenge that our society faced. So it was checking some of the boxes, but not all of them. And, and ultimately, it did prompt me to, to seek a different opportunity.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I love how frustration
0: can be crystallizing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the transition from being the vice president of another organization to the president of your present organization?
1: Yeah. That's been my every day <laughs> yeah. for the past six months. So I think one of the things that has been really um, exciting is is sort of being intentional about shifting the mindset. Mm. So there's a mindset that I think suits you well as a COO, and there's a different mindset that you need to have as a president. Um, and there's certainly similarities to the role. And one of those would be that it's about strategy in both roles. But mm-hmm. In the COO role, you're really helping to implement a strategy. Um, and in a president role, you are setting the strategy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. both you know with partners, with input from lots of other voices. But that's kind of the, the mandate. The other thing that I think is very similar is relationships. They're central to both. Um, mm-hmm. So I knew that that was something that had worked well for me as a VP. I knew I had to prioritize that as a president. But there were some other things that were um, important for me to sort of let go of. So one of the things that I loved as a COO was like being in the thick of it with program performance, program design, mm-hmm. what was the client experience. Mm-hmm. As president, I still care about those things, but it's not my primary focus. I know I have other competent people on my team who are digging in a little more mm-hmm. on that area, and I need to be shifting to some other things. And And two of them that were kind of new for me, uh, as I'm sure is new for everybody the first time they're in a, a president role in a nonprofit one is the, the donor relationships. Mm-hmm. That was new. I did not have that responsibility as a COO at my previous agency. Um, but it goes back to that point around relationships. It turns out, as much as I thought going in that there was some sort of rocket science behind development and donor relations, it turns out it's just like, be authentic. Mm-hmm. Talk to people. Listen to what they care about. Yeah. you know, and, and make those connections between what Tabor's doing and what they care about. And mm-hmm. thankfully, I have great teammates on my development team who already have those Mm -hmm. strong foundations, um, which opened the door to sort of develop those relationships um, for myself. Um, The other is around the board. I was, Uh, as a COO, providing information to the board, providing information to the the CEO, who was ultimately accountable to the board of directors, certainly went to all the board meetings. I've served on some boards myself um, as a community rep, but now having 14 people who are very interested in the work of the organization, interested in me (laughs) as the new leader of that organization, that really took some focus. And I have had some really good learning experiences in the first five months of kind of, this is what works for this person, this is not what works for that person, you're learning each of their respective styles, what aspects about Tabor is what they're most passionate about, and what kind of strategies I can use as the executive to keep the whole group well-informed and and engaged. And that's been something that as a president, you really need to prioritize. Whereas as a COO, that's really not your domain.
2: Something that you do that I really appreciate. And I think our listeners might also really uh, learn from is when you have to step up and into a new role, um, there might be something that feels a little daunting, like fund development or board management, but you have a practice of looking into where your strengths are and cutting and pasting and saying, oh, well, I'm already good at making friends and having relationships, <laughs> and I'm already assertive, and I, I can already do those things. How do I just cut and paste these onto this new opportunity? So whereas some leaders um, might feel that they're sort of stuck a- and and feel that it's too daunting, that they can't move forward, you're resourceful and saying, well, what's already in my toolbox mm-hmm. that I can use here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's I think that'll carry you well. Yeah. And I think I talked to some other people to say like, okay, well, I'm thinking this could be a good match for some of the same reasons that Mm -hmm. you just described. But I talked to other people to be like, hey, what do you think? Me and Tabor, could we be happy together? (laughs) And uh, other people said, well, you know, it seems like you've done this well. So I think that will will serve Mm -hmm. you well at Tabor or. Know, aspects of things that are important to me about the mission that they recognize in, in my work, so um, it was helpful to know that mm-hmm. myself, but helpful to get it validated externally, mm-hmm. so that I wasn't sort of too confident about you know what I brought to the yeah. next opportunity. Yeah, that
0: sounding board. Oh. Did did anything surprise you in this new role?
1: Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think the. There was certainly the challenge of, you know, when you're in a vice president role for an extended period of time, you get pretty good at it. Like you feel um, confident, right? You feel fluent in the tasks Mm -hmm. of the job and the the expectations of the role. And then you're moving up as a as a president, and you're like, okay, so I'm a beginner again. I'm (laughs) the most senior person in the organization, but also the newest. Um, And you're learning all these new requirements of the new role and the new responsibilities of the role, um, it does help to know your skill set so you can kind of apply those same yeah. things. But you have to have a le- level of humility to be like, I've got a lot to learn here, especially yeah. for an organization that's 50 years old. Yeah, It may seem like I've got this great new idea. Chances are we did it in the 80s <laughs> when I was in kindergarten. So it's like, hmm, <laughs> pause there. Um, the other thing that I think I was surprised by, um, and it's to Tabor's credit, Uh, to your intro where you talked about Tabor being a humble organization, Mm -hmm. they do, we do way more than I even realized. So the different programs that are kind of the signature programs related to homeless services that I was familiar with, I knew about the Financial Empowerment Center. But even within both of those areas, there were so many additional elements. We Mm. have a program uh, called Match Savings where we're working with people who have said, we want to go the long distance with you we'll learn all of these things to learn from financial counseling and budgeting and good behaviors related to money management. We're going to start saving on a monthly basis. And then Tabor's saying, well, we'll invest in you in response, and we'll match people two to one Mm -hmm. for every dollar they save uh, up to to $2,000. So $3,000 total. And that can be used for people to put a down payment towards a house towards uh, acquiring a car, going back to school, anything that's really gonna give you a a foundation to grow your assets over time. And that was something that I had never heard anyone in the community talk about, but I think it's a really innovative program that has truly been a game changer for the people who've Mm -hmm. gone through the program Hmm. in accelerating their journey out of poverty or their Mm -hmm. journey towards greater levels of self-sufficiency. We also have a, a wonderful family shelter called TLC that uh, many people have heard of. They're not mm-hmm. always aware of the connection with, with Tabor. But one of the great things about TLC, in addition to the family shelter that's providing, has a whole range of services for veterans who've experienced homelessness. Mm-hmm. We also have a great program that's doing outreach to landlords called Community Housing Solutions. So there's all these different wow. connections uh, to the community under this broad umbrella of housing that even to someone who thought I knew, being a leader of another nonprofit, what we did, I was like, wow, this is even bigger, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason that people don't know is because the agency is a little more humble. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of part of its its core values. Um, and part of it is because the outreach is happening more organically through uh, various partner organizations and churches it's not you know big promotion through the media necessarily but that was something that was a real pleasant surprise.
2: I think that might be a topic for another podcast this notion of the the paradox of humility and marketing Mm -hmm. or humility and and donor development (laughs) because especially here in Lancaster where we have um a strong uh, Mennonite background, mm-hmm. um, even in the Catholic worker movement, you know, all of that. Um, it's its a paradox that it's right. challenging for leaders who are in these social justice movements. So maybe we can yeah. revisit that again. You want
0: to come back? I would love to. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your team before. Can you tell me a little about the Tabor Ben strength um, that you? inherited and lead <laughs>
1: yeah yeah I was uh, both excited and intimidated by that mm. um, when an organization's been around for 50 years that's so it says something about what they've been doing well for that time mm. um, and I knew that we had a lot of people who would worked there for very long periods of time it's a place where people can build a career which is an amazing thing for an organization to have uh, so I had to really be sensitive to the fact that I'm coming in with fresh perspectives and new ideas But also needed to learn a lot about what we've done in the past. Who are we? What or who have we been during that period of time? And I think there was a few things about Tabor that allowed me to kind of get up to speed and not to say that in five months I figured it out because I haven't, but I'm, (laughs) I'm, you know, well on that journey. Uh, part of it is the, the team has been very welcoming to me yeah. in, uh, in a sincere way. It wasn't like, great, we're in a staff <laughs> meeting, and then we're going to talk about it at the water cooler. And if that's happening, then I'm just oblivious. <laughs> but uh, my perception is that it's genuine. People are really yeah. inviting me into what they do, telling me about it. Um, and I've had multiple members, in particular the vice presidents, who report to me directly, say, like, here's why we've done things the way we've done them. Mm-hmm. And then they'll add, in that same sentence, but we don't have to always do it that way Mm -hmm. as opposed to other places where I've worked where you hear, well, why would we change it? That's how we've always done it. So there is a a receptiveness to Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. different approaches while giving me the context that helps me understand, okay, well, there were really good reasons for X, Y, Z decision. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been helpful. The other thing that's been kind of interesting is that we've chronicled our, our history and our success in, um, interesting ways at each milestone. So we have these 30th, 40th, 50th anniversary uh, books, essentially, mm-hmm. that uh, I was able to read through those when I started. And it gave me a sense of you know, who the players are, what were the issues oh in the community gosh. at the time, and then what was Tabor's response yeah. to those issues. And there's a number of programs that I came in thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we could do X? And then it's like, oh, we did that. <laughs> Great it was in (laughs) 1992 you know like it's literally there on the book in front of me and i'm like "Hmm, circle that and we can revisit it Mm -hmm. um so that's been exciting uh there's also this great document that was written by one of our founders a mennonite woman named grace wanger and she said uh looking at this issue of housing discrimination racially based housing discrimination and she said no room in lancaster and it's a foundational document. Wow. I n- I don't know that many nonprofits can point back to that and mm-hmm. say, hey, this was sort of our essence at the moment of our founding, a controversial issue rooted in a faith tradition and the response to that issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been something that gave me a sense kind of, of like when you want to dig deep about what Tabor is. Yeah. It's in this incredible document from... From fifty years ago. So Do you call a, it the manifesto? I don't. <laughs> oh. I I yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. Did you have any trepidation about moving into this role? None. Zero. I can tell by no, your face. I mean
1: <laughs> Yeah. Kedrick could tell you there may have been some conversations to this effect. Uh yeah, absolutely there was trepidation. I think Thankfully, I've worked at places over my career that I was always sad to leave mm-hmm. and simultaneously excited about the next thing. So mm-hmm. I was able to leave on my own terms um, and had had really positive connections to those places, mm-hmm. but knew that that chapter had ended and now it was time to start a new one. So I, I felt like that was the case with CAP2. Mm-hmm. Um, there was conveniently an article in New York Times around that time that talked about leaving a job as a form of uh, a process of grief. Mm. Um, okay. even when it's on your own terms and mm-hmm. like you go through all those stages mm-hmm. of grief. And, and that was the case at cap. I had hired most of the people who worked directly with me. We had formed an incredible team. I had gotten to meet so many other incredible people who worked there. Um, w- we just gelled in many ways. Mm. Um, and it felt like a place where I was able to work on some really cool projects. Some of those projects still are in process. I, mm. I wouldn't say they had concluded during my tenure, um, so that was something sad, too, of, like, leaving those projects mm-hmm. that you really cared about. But I knew about what Tabor was doing. I knew about the reputation it had. I knew about how it was changing the lives of clients. Uh, and I w- was excited about getting to know a whole new team and building mm-hmm. that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and being able to be part of idea generation for its next chapter. Um, so it was definitely bittersweet, but yeah. I can't say... I've had a single day that I've regretted it at all. It has really been a place where I feel like I can kind of be the best version of myself professionally. Mm. And I have just loved that learning process mm. of, of getting to know the organization and my colleagues and our partners and our donors. It's It's been a lot of fun.
2: Mm, so that good. is so beautiful. Well, what ag- advice would you give to our listeners uh, who are looking in the face of a potential transition what advice would you give them
1: well i I have a few that are pretty concrete um one would be do some kind of assessment Mm -hmm. that evaluates your sort of core behaviors in leadership Mm -hmm. for me it was the emotional intelligence assessment Mm -hmm. the eq that uh really illuminated some things that i maybe knew on some level that I was doing well um, but hadn't had them broken down into specific behaviors Mm -hmm. um, and leadership domains and then I could look at that and see how I measured up to the standard for other leaders who were in executive positions and it also showed me areas where I was maybe a little bit lower on the leadership bar and could actually do something about it. Mm-hmm. So the amazing thing about the EQ is it is not fixed. Right. It is something that you can adapt Thank based God. on practicing new <laughs> behaviors, yeah. Yeah. unlike the IQ, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. you either have it or you don't. Yeah. But with the EQ, like you can pay attention. And one mm-hmm. that was low for me, uh, which was a little surprising at first, but then when I dug into it, I was like, oh, this is right, um, was optimism. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of myself as a fairly optimistic mm-hmm. person. But I realized uh, in some of uh, the ways it was showing up at work that maybe I was a little more negative sometimes about things that were happening. I think part of that was the nature of the COO job. Mm. You try to keep a lot of the crap out of the CEO's office. Right. So yeah. <laughs> it comes to you, which can shift your mindset a little bit. Um, but as a CEO, uh, I knew I was going to have to be like having that vision of, mm-hmm. of that bright future on mm-hmm. um, that hope that it, that things will change and can change. And so I started paying attention to, to that a little more. If I saw myself skewing a little bit skeptical or negative about mm-hmm. an issue, I'd be like, eh, time out. <laughs> so that would be something that I think yeah. you, I probably wouldn't have gone down that path if I hadn't gone through the assessment. Yeah. Um, there's other assessments out there, but the more that you know about how your leadership style is actually showing up to your colleagues mm-hmm. at your work, um, the better you're going to be able to do to, to become a better leader. Um, and I think listening is really key. Yeah. Um, that sounds cliche, but it is truly the mm-hmm. part that you can only figure out sort of what's happening within your workplace if you're listening to the people who know better than you do. Mm-hmm. And one of the priorities I had in my first month was to meet with every member of the Tabor team. And I asked them three key questions. I said, what do you love about Tabor? And then I said, if we could change something or do something differently, what would what would that be? And then I said, dream big for me. <laughs> if you could design your own program, forget about budget, just make sure that it fits our mission, what would that look like? Mm. And it gave me this wonderful insight into yeah. the things that were frustrating for people, but also the dreams that they had of how uh, the housing challenges and financial challenges for people in Lancaster could look different. Mm. And uh, also a great roadmap. Now that we're heading into a strategic yeah. plan, I could say, here's the input from 47 colleagues. And um, similar conversations I had with donors and board members wasn't quite that structured, um, but got a a real sense of kind of what they loved about Mm -hmm. the organization and what things they wanted to see differently about the organization. And most people have both. It's never like black and white, like somebody is truly a cheerleader and somebody else is totally critical. Most people have pretty nuanced views. um, And that was something that was helpful for me to hear Um, and I think the third part when you're making the transition is you're going to get lots of input from lots of people. And I strongly recommend that there's this notion out there of like your personal board of directors, Mm -hmm. like talk to those people, get their Mm -hmm. feedback, but then you need to take a step back and reflect on what they said and Mm -hmm. reflect on how you're feeling about what you've heard or what you've experienced. When I worked at Loyola university in the center for community service and justice, they do service learning for, for college students. And we would always say, as part of our orientation for those programs, this quote from T.S. Eliot that I absolutely love. And it's, you could have the experience, but miss the meaning. Mm-hmm. And so I think that reflective leadership is so important. You can do all the stuff, <sighs> but if you're not synthesizing yeah. it and seeing, like, well, what is it telling me mm-hmm. about who I am or, or what really matters to me, then I think you could. Uh, miss some really important meaning there. So that reflection piece is hard when the demands of either the current job you're in or the new job you're starting Mm -hmm. are coming at you at 180 (laughs) miles an hour, but you have to make that time and figure Mm -hmm. out whatever method works for you, but um, do protect the time for some reflection.
0: Mm -hmm. That's good. Mike, we are both, we're so grateful uh, to you for being part of this movement of helping world changers in the workplace enhance their individual and collective team performance thank you listeners for downloading the behaviorist we hope you'll subscribe please reach out to us through our website workwisdomllc.com where you can enjoy work wisdom press and productions ask questions and give suggestions of topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes as is our custom i think Kedron's going to read the uh one minute wisdom by anthony DeMello. demillo The master would frequently assert that
2: holiness was less a matter of what one did than of what one allowed to happen. To a group of disciples who had difficulty understanding that, he told the following story. There was once a one-legged dragon who said to the centipede, How do you manage all those legs? It's all I can do to manage one. To tell you the truth, said the centipede, I do not manage them at all. Thank you.